You're listening to PNN, KEXU, Poor People's Revolutionary Radio on 96.1 FM LP on the dial in Oakland and streaming live online at www.poormagazine.org slash radio. FM, Pole People's Revolutionary Radio. I'm JV, and you're listening to Free Aslan. And today, got a very special show today. Um, I'm here, um, I got a in-studio interview today with uh, author and um, community activist uh, Ernesto Vigil. And, um, and Ernesto, um, welcome to Free Aslan. It's my pleasure to be here. And, and you know, Ernesto, he he's, you know, does a lot of good work. Um, he's written about the Chicano Moratorium. We have the 50th anniversary coming up. So this is, you know, it's, it's very important that we hear uh, and we learn from history and, um, and, and we continue into the future. So, but Ernesto, let me... Um, let me ask you, you know, you got a couple of books and um, and in one book in particular has, um, you know, I know, you know, the Crusade for Justice, uh, great book, um, Crusade for Justice organization in Colorado um, and, you know, Corky Gonzalez, of course, um, uh, was a part of a founder of Crusade. But can you tell us about both of your books and, and also about the chapter in particular on the Chicano Moratorium? Uh, okay, well, uh, here on this visit, uh, I, I want to be clear that I'm not like a, main, a mainstream scholar. I have only a BA degree uh, in education through uh, an experimental program and got that BA in uh, 1972. So, and, and actually I'm a critic of mainstream uh, education. Uh, I'm even uh, known for the criticism I've made on it. Uh, so despite the fact that I don't have the mainstream uh, scholarship credentials, uh, I get published like, by the Colorado Historical Society, the University of Wisconsin Press, and I currently have a manuscript uh, with a Midwestern University publisher, the working title at this point is the FBI, the American Indian Movement, and the Death of Anime Aquash. I have a contract to publish. I'm working on my final uh, revisions. Uh, and so I, at this point, don't have a publication date. But uh, just this past December of last year, uh, my first full book, uh, The Crusade for Justice, Chicano Militancy, and the Government's War on Dissent, went out of print. It was published in 1999, did very well. 
they sold the first print run in 11 months. And again, uh, I don't have fancy degrees from Cornell, Stanford, Harvard, uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, and frankly, uh, I haven't missed much by missing that mainstream education. It's politics and activism that has driven my scholarship. So in the Crusade for Justice book, there is an, an, uh, there's a total, I believe, of 17 chapters. And one of the chapters is chapter 7, East Los Angeles, August 29, 1970. It's an entire uh, chapter on the events of the L.A. Moratorium. Uh, I was present uh, at the original L.A. Moratorium, August 29, 1970, in East Los Angeles. More than that, uh, on my 20th birthday uh, in 1968, I had dropped out of college. I wanted to return home uh, to work with an organization that I'd heard about because it was against the war in Vietnam. It was the Crusade for Justice organization. Rodolfo Gonzalez has criticized the war as a person in 1966, and then the entire organization as an organization opposed the war in 1967. Uh, Given that a lot of our people have served in the various wars that this country has started or in which it has dis, uh, participated, uh, a lot of people in our community have had brothers, uncles, uh, fathers, grandfathers serve in America's wars only to return and remain second-class citizens. The war in Vietnam was an interventionist, colonialist, imperialist war Luckily, at the age of 18, I was able to put two and two together and realize that it was a criminal war. Uh, and on my 20th birthday, having dropped out of college, I knew that I was going to get a draft notice anyway. So I beat him to the punch. I took my draft card that by federal law I was, opposed, I was obligated to carry, and I wrote a letter uh, to the draft board, and I said, I'm sending back your card. I'm not part of your system. I'm not going to be one of your stooges. I oppose your war. It's a criminal war. And that led to my activism as an anti-war activist. After sending in that draft card, I traveled from Philadelphia when I was then living, and I returned to Denver, Colorado, and became a member of the Crusade for Justice, specifically because it was against the war in Vietnam. As far as federal court records show, I am the first Chicano to uh, uh, oppose the war in Vietnam, not based on religious principles, but based on political uh, ideology and on ethics and the fact that the war in Vietnam was a criminal imperialist war. That led to my participation two years later in the uh, East Los Angeles, Chicano Anti-War Moratorium, and wrote an entire chapter about that in my book, which unfortunately this past year has gone out of print. But that is a background uh, in terms of my politics and my history and my connections to the original uh, East LA Chicano Moratorium. And I'm really glad to be here, especially having gotten to know you and the efforts you want uh, 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 and the endeavors you want to undertake to have a um, an event here on the 50th anniversary of the Alley Moratorium in Los Angeles, but doing it here in Northern California. 
Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, we're currently organizing for um, is to have uh, an, a Chicano moratorium event uh, for Central and Northern Califa Slan. Um, we're going to um, decide on the, um, the location within the next couple of weeks and um, we're going to have an event here. It's going to be on a different day than the event in uh, Southern California because um, you know we want <clears throat> we want Rasa to go to the Southern California event and then also participate in our event here. So <clears throat> in in the importance, you know, I've spoken about this before. I've wrote written. Um, I had an article um, um, published on this um, topic as well. And <clears throat> the way I see it is that the um, for anti-imperialists. Um, the most, um, the highest form of anti-imperialism today is supporting, in my opinion, supporting the Chicano moratorium because it is, um, you know, it is the U.S. military that allows for America to go around the world and exploit uh, resources um, um, from oppressed nations around the world. So um, if if the U.S. military, the whole apparatus uh, of the military is the, um, the backbone of U.S. imperialism and, and, and drives U.S. imperialism, then um, we have to look at um, what, you know, who is included in this U.S. military, um, who's populating it. And the numbers show today that Rasa overwhelmingly um, are um, the, grow, the fastest growing force within the U.S. military of all branches. And um, just like the Rasa are the, um, you know, the leading populations of growth um, in the U.S. population. So if, if we know that Rasa are the fastest growing recruits in the U.S. military, then um, and women um, Rasa are also the fastest growing even faster than the men. So if the future of the U.S. military is brown, then um, in order to stop U.S. Im uh, imperialism, um, in my opinion, it would be to, um, to stop the recruitment of Rasa. And um, the Chicano Moratorium does just that. You know, the Chicano Moratorium um, turns off the spigot of brown bodies entering the U.S. military. And this is something that we need to uh, we need to um, stop. This is something that we need to focus on. We need to um, give our undivided attention as a Chicano nation into the uh, browning of the U.S. military. Because if we stop Rasa from entering the military, we're going to um, inflict a huge blow on U.S. imperialism around the world. Um, and this is why the Chicano Moratorium is so uh, threatening um, to the empire because um, it, it is the backbone of, of U.S. imperialism. This is without the, the military, uh, there would be no U.S. imperialism. You know, so, um, so Rasa are going to have uh, hold the key in which way uh, imperialism um, goes in the future, whether uh, imperialism, um, you know, um, advances or whether it, um, 
you know, is neutralized. So this is something that the Chicano moratorium that people are learning about, you know, and, and this is something that is being organized. Um, the, the idea is to have a Chicano moratorium for central and northern Khalifa Aslan, uh, and and um, and and there's other projects as well that are in the works um, as far as um, continuing uh, the Chicano movement even after the Chicano moratorium in August. So um, this is a project that um, you know is going to um, breathe new life into the Chicano movement as we know it. And so the the moratorium. Um, is very important. We're going to be announcing very soon a date and a location, uh, and we're going to need all organizations, all RASA, all organizations, uh, community people, uh, barrio people. Um, we're going to need, you know, I want to hear about, you know, it would. I should rather say it would make me very happy if I hear even the prisons having actions for the Chicano moratorium, you know, we want to, you know, the, the, the prisons, the jails, the youth centers, the juvenile halls, you know, we want all of our nation, all elements of our nation to participate, get involved and to uh, flex that uh, Chicano muscle and to um, send a clear message um, that we um, we are not going to participate in these uh, white wars. And that's what it is. You know, I, I like to be blunt about it. And these are white wars. U.S. imperialist wars are white wars. And, um, you know, we're not going to participate in them. And we're going to teach our children and our families and our friends and our neighbors that um, it's wrong. You know, Iran has never done nothing to Chicano people. The Iranian people are struggling against the same oppressor as us, you know. And so, yeah, that's that's uh, one of the things uh, we're going to do. And and I know, Ernesto, that you, um, you know, during the can you talk a little bit about because some of our listeners are young, very young. And they may not know about the first Chicano moratorium back in the days. And, and um, can you speak a little bit on the history of, of, you know, what happened that day? And the the role of uh, young people of Mexican descent uh, uh, needs to be understood at in that particular period. Uh, in 1970, at the time of the uh, L.A. moratorium, uh, among the Mexican population, we had the youngest median age uh, of all major groups in the country, African Americans, whites, etc. cetera. Uh, and historically, uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the racism in this country, too many of our people have felt that in order to prove they are Americans, they have to show their loyalty. Now, first of all, if we lived in this region before there was a United States, we don't have to prove anything to anybody. And this whole thing about, oh, I want to be an American. Well, what the hell does that really mean? Mm. Uh, they instill us with this false sense of, pa of patriotism. And by destroying our image, our history, and our self-esteem through the racist treatment, the racist school system, the racist depictions in the media, we end up with an inferiority complex that we have to prove something to somebody else. 
anytime you feel obligated to prove anything to anyone else, you're basically conceding they are superior and you have to prove something to them. So if you look at the statistics of uh, fatalities, there is a book called Among the Valiant that was specifically written to show the role of Latino soldiers, Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, etc., in the U.S. military, primarily, though, those of Mexican descent. Because though there are a broad variety of Latino peoples living here now, and always have been, uh, the, the, the role of Mexican is crucial, okay? Uh, people of Mexican descent, and so I use the, pro- the word Chicano, Chicana, Mexican interchangeably. In any case, that book showed that one out of ten Medal of Honor winners in World War II and the Korean War, 10% of the Medal of Honor winners were Mexicans, people of Mexican descent. We were less than 3% of the population. So our numbers have grown massively since then, and we can no longer afford to sacrifice our youth in imperialist wars to make corporations rich and still we're treated like dirt. If you look at all wars and you look at the class aspects, it is the, the young people of the poor, poor whites, Puerto Ricanos, African Americans, Mexicans, American Indians who lose our lives fighting for the master. Well, once we say no more, we're not fighting your wars, then we've gotten rid of a master and we've gotten rid of an inferiority complex. So I wanted to say historically that it's really ironic that we are broadcasting today here in the Bay Area because of the role of the Bay Area in Northern California in the Los Angeles moratorium to begin with. Specifically, there was a uh, major anti-war effort based in Washington, D.C., and in San Francisco that took place in November of 1969, and I traveled with a delegation from the crusade to be here. There was a conference at, uh, it was then called uh, 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 California State University at Hayward, and there was a political conference there of Latino activists uh, who were speaking against the war, and uh, all the delegations who congregated here were going to participate in the protest the following day. There had been some young college uh, radical activists from Southern California, uh, both men and women. Uh, given the passing of time, I forgot everyone's name who was here, but two principal figures uh, were Ramses Noriega and Rosalio Munoz, who had been the former student body president at UCLA, who had turned against the war in Vietnam, and they wanted to organize uh, against the war in Vietnam. So those forces were present at a college presentation on Hayward, uh, at Hayward when Rodolfo Gonzalez was on the stage. During a break in the uh, presentations being made, Rosalio Munoz, Ramses Noriega approached Corky Gonzalez, and they said, Corky, for all the white youth who are made politically conscious to understand that that is an illegal criminal war, for every one of them that eliminates themselves and refuses to participate in the war, we have an unconscious, unpoliticized Mexican taking his place. 
So, Rosalio Munoz and Ramses Noriega says, you know, we'd like to propose an anti-war event at a major Chicano city uh, where there's major population concentrations of our gente and oppose that war in Vietnam. We need to call it the Chicano Moratorium. Mm. That's the first time I heard that pre- that uh, that term. Corky says, and they asked him, when you get back on stage to continue this program, you know, would you maybe propose that we need to have a Chicano moratorium? Corky said, no, I won't do that. I support your idea, but I'm going to go you one better. When I get back up on stage, I'm calling you to the stage, and you make the proposal, and you call for people to endorse it. So that's how Rosalia Munoz took the stage here at Hayward uh, and proposed the Chicano Moratorium. The next day, we all participated in the protest in uh, Golden Gate Park. It is notable for the arrest, I believe, of David Hilliard. For <laughs> mm, Black Panther, right? <laughs> they claimed he threatened the president. <laughs> so, <laughs> in any case, that got the ball rolling uh, in... December of 1969, uh, a group reconvened in Denver, Colorado. Uh, It was a very small, in in terms of numbers, maybe 30 to 40 people. But it included uh, a Puerto Rican brother uh, whose name slips me at this very moment. A Puerto Rican from uh, Chicago had refused uh, to participate in the war and had done time over that. So we, we, we drew together forces such as that, and we decided to strategize about how to have a major protest. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the few people uh, the, among the, 40 that, or four, the 30 or 40 who congregated in Denver were actually involved in an incident where the police arrested uh, two of us, beat two of us very badly, including, including a man named Roberto Elias, who had come to Denver with uh, Rosalie Munoz. In March of 1970, there was the second national annual Chicano Youth Liberation Conference held in Denver. We had, oh, probably 1,700 people participate from throughout the country, uh, including Puerto Ricanos from New York and from New York City, excuse me, from Chicago and New York City. It was at this massive youth conference that a workshop was held to propose that the entire conference endorse a Chicano moratorium, but that every uh, state would have a minor protest against the war to build the consciousness and to build the numbers to turn out in East L.A. So that conference and that endorsement and the spreading of the word there uh, led to what turned out to be the largest organi- uh, the largest protest against the war in Vietnam by a ethnic group, a, a group of color. 30,000 people turned out in East Los Angeles on August 29, mm. 1929, and I was there as well. I saw how the violence was initiated by the LAPD and LA Sheriff's Office, and over the years, one of the things that I have developed as a, uh, is a, an enthusiasm for researching the, uh, the techniques of police departments, the mm. FBI, and other agencies that undermine p- 
political uh, uh, domestic movements. So as a matter of fact, and ironically, uh, here in my uh, backpack, uh, I brought something that I sent you a text message on. I said, hey, man, I have something for you. I have the FBI file on the alley moratorium. Wow. <laughs> and, it's uh, like a gold mine right there. And, and uh, I want to share that with you. Oh, Again, to show absolutely. the historical roots of the struggle. Yes. Because we're not really doing anything new. We are continuing a historic mm. struggle because all of us over the generations, our communities have struggled for liberation in one way or, number, or another. Now our numbers are massive, but our numbers mean nothing unless we are politically awake. Our numbers mean nothing unless we are organized, and our numbers mean nothing unless we take action. I was a speaker in East L.A. this past August uh, and uh, at the 49th commemoration. And I urged uh, the following because of my historical awareness of that event. It was just not an anti-war event. There were other currents and other, uh, other political currents at work that raised issues that were to be addressed on the stage. For example, uh, in, uh, I believe it was May or June of 1970, the police in L.A. Uh, kicked in a door to serve a warrant on somebody that they were looking to arrest. The men inside that house jumped out uh, a back porch, jumped out a window, went running across the yard. The police opened up and killed two of them for running away. Mm. The men inside that house, the suspect had moved long before the police served, served the warrant. Mm. They went to arrest somebody who had not lived there for a long time. The two men they shot were undocumented Mexicanos who thought it was an immigration raid, uh, and they were cousins. Mm. So uh, the issue of immigration is not new. As a fat matter of fact, the real problem with immigration in this country started when colonials came across an entire ocean to steal an entire land. Mm. And so if there is an issue about illegal immigration, we have to put it in the historical context mm. and say what the truth really is. So the issue of immigration was to be addressed there that day. And look at the issue it has now become because the establishment, the forces that be, the economic and political elites have made an issue where no issue existed. Uh, and now we have a racist uh, the, the man is, is uh, pathological. He runs the White House and is a criminal. Absolutely. Is a criminal, criminal. And continues these illegal wars, as did Barack Obama, as did Bill Clinton. The rhetoric we used back then is that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are, one, are a beast with two heads eating out of the same trough. Mm fed by the money of the economic elites that these wars serve. So, the original moratorium was to address more than one issue, more than just the war in Vietnam. At the event in August uh, in L.A. when I spoke uh, recently at the 49th commemoration, I said, we now have new and growing populations, for example, of Central Americans and Asians and people from Africa who are fleeing oppressive regimes, 
fleeing the economic conditions and poverty uh, and destitution that has been imposed upon them by the U.S. and all its capitalist Western allies. And after they create the conditions, when people have to leave their homelands, they now call them illegal aliens, and you can't come in here, and we're building a wall at the border, and we're taking your kids away from you. That's criminal. In my entire life of activism, and I just turned 72 in January, I quit counting the number of rests that I had at 30. So it's above that, but I quit counting after 30. They've never been able to pin a felony on me as hard as they tried. And in fact, I even did time for my opposition to the war in Vietnam. I was locked up in the federal uh, FCI, Englewood Colorado, for refusing to be inducted twice. The second incident led into a violent confrontation between me and a friend, and about 12 recruiting officers, they charged us with assault. And I did some minor time on that, but under the Federal Youth Corrections Act, and through the pressure and mobilization uh, in the community in Denver, it put pressure on the judge, because I had a clean record. Uh, I had a clean record. The judge wanted to give me the maximum, but it was the power of the people being organized and pressuring the court and showing massive support that forced them to release me mm. and finish the rest of my sentence on proba- probation. And the felony was expunged. The reason I raise that point is I have no felonies on my record. But I told people in East L.A. on the 14th commemoration, we have to shut down these places where they are locking up kids, mm. taking them away from their families and traumatizing those kids forever, that's criminal. And I've said, we need to organize a massive number of people and we need to identify a key facility and we need to shut it down. And on something like that, yeah, I will take a felony. Yeah, I will do time because I've led a full life. Those kids are starting theirs. So this current moratorium needs to do outreach to the Central American populations. <coughs> we need to call on our allies everywhere, but we need to build our power where our power is, and our only power is in the organization of our numbers. So that was the original moratorium. I was there. Uh, I would like to recommend uh, uh, a friend of mine who's currently working on his degree, and he's my age now. He had been a Vietnam vet, Uh, and once he arrived in Vietnam, he realized the mistake he had made for signing up. He attended East L.A. College, and these friends of his, uh, and they were young women, continued mailing him articles on the growing Chicano movement and continued sending him articles from the L.A. Times by a reporter named Ruben Salazar. So my friend, his name is Ricardo Lopez. He is the best researcher on what happened at the L.A. moratorium, the police agencies and federal agencies involved in undermining it. He is the leading source of information not only on Ruben Salazar, the L.A. moratorium, but the life, death, and disappearance of the noted Chicano radical attorney, Oscar Zeta Acosta. So over the years, we have been compiling our archives to show what the government has done to undermine social movements, 
I have probably the second biggest collection of FBI documents that I can decipher to tell the story that's hidden in all the deletions of their papers. But this type of research only shows that the powers that be in this country, most notably the FBI, but about 13 or 14 other federal investigative agencies have a political agenda, (coughs) an illegal one, to undermine mass movements and, if necessary, to set up activists to be killed. Uh, So that's some of the research I've done. The issues, because the issues... (coughs) were not successfully addressed at that time. Conditions of imprisonment, conditions of poverty, conditions of repression literally have gotten worse. Mm -hmm. Our numbers have grown, and the only real power upon uh, upon which I think we can rely is the organization of the masses of our people with emphasis on the working class and the poor to be the leaders in their own liberation. So I, I endorse everything you intend to do here in Northern California because not only was there a political initiative launched starting at Hayward that ended up becoming the LA Moratorium, there were people from Northern California. For example, there's a friend of mine, Juan Espinosa, Mm. Uh, a brown beret from this area who with black berets from San Jose, when they heard of the L.A. moratorium, they caravan down there. And when the rioting broke out, about six or seven of them were arrested in the moratorium as well. So if any of you all know my friend Juan (laughs) Espinosa, he was one of the people arrested down there. I... Lost his number over time, so if anyone knows him, send him my regards. So there were also people arrested down there from Northern California, but the whole event was kicked off by the LAPD, the LA Sheriff's Office, and specifically the various entities under the umbrella of the Intelligence Division of the LAPD. Uh, there, we know about the repression done by the FBI. Very few people focus on the other agencies. Mm. So I spoke at a community college today uh, to young students at San Jose City College, and I said, in that era, and to understand this era, those who want to understand the role of the federal government in undermining popular movements, they should read Frank Donner's book, Age of Surveillance. Mm. But the FBI, as an example, they put in an eight-hour shift, and then they go home. But who is out there patrolling in our communities 24 hours a day in three shifts? The police departments. And they are the stooges, and they gather intelligence that they turn over to the FBI. Mm. These are collaborative efforts, and they've grown even larger. But for those interested in the role of police departments in undermining social movements, they should read Frank Donner's book, And you can find it in any decent library. A second book by Frank Donner is called Protectors of Privilege. Mm. And I would specifically like to point 
to the evil role of the LAPD Intelligence Division. The LA Police Department historically has been corrupt, historically has been politically reactionary, historically has been racist, and to this day is even more powerful than before. And in 1954, they started a network of intelligence entities of various police departments called the Law Enforcement Intelligence Unit. And most people had never even heard of it, the LEIU. It's now international in scope. Mm. And in 1990, when there's going to be the 20th anniversary of the LA Moratorium and people were organizing all over to attend that particular event, I discovered that the LAPD had contacted the Denver Police Department Intelligence Division and asked them to monitor our activities. When I found out, I confronted the cops. I said, why are you doing this? Oh, well, you know, we just want to make sure that this will be an orderly event. I said, there's orderly events all over the place. You don't check into all of them. I end up getting one cop (laughs) uh, to admit that the Denver Police Department Intelligence Division had been notified by the LAPD. LAPD has no jurisdiction in Denver. Mm. And the Denver Police Department has no jurisdiction over legal activities. But again, this is the networks at work to undermine our right to express ourselves, to criticize the government, and to organize to change the Mm. government and its criminal acts. Mm. Yeah, and I just want to say one of the uh, one of the listeners um, who's asked about um, books written by our people, and here's one of them: Chicano Power: The Struggle for Aslan. And this was written by Chicano prisoners. And I just want to note that it's the first book ever published in the U.S. written by Chicano prisoners, a revolutionary history book. It's actually the first um, history book, revolutionary history book, written by Chicano prisoners. So, and, and also, of course, Vigil has his Crusade for Justice book, um, you know, and that's, that's a very important book. But I wanted to say, and he has another book as well, but I wanted to ask, well, I just wanted to address that, um, you know, a lot of people will be surprised that, you know, they hear about FBI surveillance and... Um, and Cointel Pro, but um, people would be surprised that, um, you know, as we talked about, and, and you know, that, that there's actually more military agents, U.S. Army, Naval, Def- Naval Intelligence, actually more military agents on the street than there is FBI agents, right? In 1970, and, and this is being forgotten with time, and on top of that, the establishment media does not want to educate us about all the scandals that are at the heart of the establishment. But uh, uh, a man named Christopher Pyle, he's, I believe he's a professor uh, at a private college in the Northeast now, but he was in the Army then. Uh, uh, and he was a man who like, respected the U.S. Constitution. And... Uh, At that time, the U.S. military was at different times deployed in the urban uprisings by African Americans in the 1960s. So he was tasked with training the soldiers for how to deploy in an urban area. But again, uh, he believed in the U.S. Constitution. So he was saying, for example, if troops have 
to be deployed into a major urban area, where are they going to be housed? Uh, okay, so he figured, oh, well, we'll contact the school systems, the colleges, whatever. We will use our dormitories. We'll set up cots there. People can bathe there well, and, and, and then be deployed to, to control any urban unrest. Soldiers came up to him and said, you know, we really like your courses, uh, but do you want to see what we're doing? And, and he was puzzled. He says, uh, what do you mean, uh, what we're doing? Well, yeah, you're talking about, you know, urban unrest, blah, blah, blah. Don't you want to see what we're doing? And he said, sure, uh, show me what you're doing. They took him to a warehouse. He was in the Army. And the warehouse they took him to on a military base had so much data collected on domestic anti-war groups and domestic civil rights groups and domestic dissident groups that the amount of of information they had was so massive that they used forklifts to go up and pull down entire racks of documentation. And again, he's very conscious of the U.S. Constitution in his head. He says, hey, this is completely illegal. It led to hearings in Congress, and among the findings were, in 1970, that the U.S. Army alone, principally through what were called military intelligence groups, MIGs, uh, he discovered that the Army alone had a bigger budget allocated for undermining social groups, domestic social groups, which is illegal. Mm. And they had more agents on the street infiltrating groups than did the FBI. That was the army alone. So when I have the documents that I'm going to show you, I will point out that if you look in the lower left-hand corner on these documents, it'll say 113 MIG, the 113th Military Intelligence Group, which is one I believe one of I believe seven army regions, each one uh, with an MIG Military Intelligence wow. Group. Other documents will say OSI. OSI is the Office of Strategic uh, Intelligence. Str- uh, no, uh, Office of Special Investigations. Mm. That's the Air Force. uh, intelligence. Then you have the ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and the NISRA, Naval Intelligence Service Regional Agency. Wow. Now, they're not sending these documents just to inform the military. It is my belief that the biggest secret in that era was not the counterintelligence programs of the FBI. It is a Spying done by the U.S. military, and that has been successfully covered up, and now it is even more massive. Mm. So um, that is one of my uh, special areas of interest. I have a book uh, that I think is going to be very interesting, not only to Chicanos and Chicanas, not only to Latinos and Latinas, but to the African-American activists in this country and the progressive, radical, mainstream white activists in this country. And the focus of it is the American Indian activists, a key number of them. I follow people like Leonard Peltier, 
Dennis Banks, Russell Means, a woman named Anna Mae Aquash, and what happened with them from 1975 all the way to 2010. This is not a nostalgic book about the movement in the 60s and 70s. It starts in the mid-70s, and it comes all the way up to 2010 when members of the American Indian Movement were prosecuted over the death of a very important woman activist in the American Indian Movement named Anime Aquash. Uh, there were three trials, the first one in 2004, two trials in 2010, and a fourth case where a woman plea bargained a guilty plea. Uh, it is going to open a lot of minds and a lot of eyes and a lot of ears uh, because one of the ways that they undermine our movement, and, and people need to understand this, the FBI does not necessarily infiltrate a group to get rid of it. Frequently, they'll infiltrate a group to take it over, mm. including at the leadership level. Mm. So, for example, I will point out two different names, for example. Mm. I know a lot of people may be aware of the political prisoner who is serving two life sentences for an incident in which two FBI agents were killed in June 1975, Leonard Paltier. On Leonard Paltier's defense committee were two men whose last name was Hill. One of them was a man named Walter Leon Hill, who was on the Leonard Paltier Defense Committee from approximately 1974 to 1976 or 77 when it was discovered. He claimed to be one quarter Choctaw, and he grew <laughs> long hair. A quarter Choctaw. And so, uh, oh, I'm one quarter Choctaw, but he's not on any tribal enrollment. He had no proof of his native uh, ancestry that he claimed. Turned out that Walter Leon Hill, an attorney, happened to also have worked f as a a as a prosecutor in district court in San Diego County, specializing on the targeting of drug gangs. In other words, young Mexicans. Mm. He was a prosecutor from 1985 to 1990. <coughs> then he decided to go into private practice. He created a group called uh, Verloc Group Incorporated. It's incorporated in the California Secretary of State's office. So this man who in 1974 to 1996, 97, is on the Leonard Pouture Defense Committee, had been an officer in the Office of Naval Intelligence from 1981 to 1983. Then he applied for employment with the CIA, and he says in 1985 they rejected uh, his application, but by then he'd gotten a law degree in San Diego at the, there's a private law school down there, Western State Law School, I don't, don't know the name of it exactly. He became a prosecutor for five years. Then in 1991, he creates a private uh, security uh, company, executive security company, uh, and uh, it's called Verloc Group Incorporated. There were two other incorporators. Both of them had recently retired from the CIA. Okay? Mm. So this is 1991. 
1994, he's on the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. Wow. And I've checked his record. He never, he was an attorney. He never filed a single motion on Leonard's behalf. But meanwhile, he's working internally to undermine it. And like a lot of intelligence agents, uh, these men, uh, first of all, are criminal. Sometimes they're highly intelligent. Many of them are also pathological. In 2001, for whatever reasons, and these aren't quite clear, he had lost his law license. He was practicing in Boulder, Colorado, and he was a friend of a man named retired Lieutenant Colonel Robert K. Brown, the owner and publisher of Soldier of Fortune magazine. They were buddies. He lost his license to practice, and uh, for some reason, he came from a wealthy background, and he's living in his mommy's home. (laughs) <laughs> and he has a domestic dispute with his wife, pulls a gun on her. Meanwhile, the police are called. They respond to the scene, and they arrest him. And he is banned from having weapons or having contact with his wife. This is around August of 2000, excuse me, in the summer of 2001. By November or December of 2001, he not only had recontacted his wife, she had moved in with him in violation of the court orders. Wow. The court order, and as you may well know, uh, if uh, it's illegal, um, when you are out on bond, it's a federal offense to have weapons. Mm, yeah. Well, it, here's a, a strange little story. Uh, a, uh, a woman calls the local police department. It's his wife. She says these men have broken into her apartment, and she physically chased them out. And with the police, please report to the scene. So it's sort of a strange call. When they get there, they find the woman. She's handcuffed. The only thing she's wearing is a bathrobe, and the handcuffs have the initials WLH, uh, WLH, Walter Leon Hill. On top of that, they find a shitload of guns in the apartment. Wow. Uh, but she says, well, thank you for taking off the handcuffs. I can't identify the men. I'm not going to file a charge. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <coughs> so the cops leave, and they say, this is very strange. They get a call that afternoon from Walter Leon Hill. says, would you please do a, ha- a welfare check on my wife? Uh, I believe she may be on the verge of suicide. The police report there, and they <laughs> confiscate all the weapons so she can't kill herself. But two weeks later, he calls up the police department. He says, well, everything's cool now. Those are my weapons. I'm a lawyer, and I'm coming for my weapons. The police department helped him load all the weapons in his car. He drove off, and one cop got suspicious, checked into it, finds out this guy has a restraining order. This guy uh, had failed to appear on traffic warrants. This guy is in violation of the prohibition of having all these weapons. To make a long story short, in 2003, uh, he skips out on court and has not been seen again. He was facing, I believe, four felonies and up to like 11 misdemeanors. And again, has never been seen Mm. again. So in an era where you need, uh, you know, you go to a Greyhound bus station, you want to buy a ticket, you got to show ID. Mm. You want to fly on the airlines, you got to show an ID. You want a job, you got to show ID. Cops tear you on the street all the time, you got to show an ID. How is this man living with an out an ID? I'm pretty sure the answer is through his connections that he has with the intelligence community that trained him. So... The book uh, uh, 
currently pending publication tells the stories of people like Walter Leon Hill. Mm. And um, uh, it's going to be a real hot potato uh, mm. because the book ends uh, account, uh, recounting three trials, 2004 and 2010, where three people were arrested for the 1975 death of the woman Anime Aquash, an important member of the American Indian Movement. Uh, of the four people that were prosecuted, three of them were identified as culprits within a week of her murder. And the FBI waited 27 years to make an arrest. And, the, and many of the witnesses, cooperating witnesses, in fact, were accomplices. And I was able to get my hands on the discovery material. Mm. And it is a real hot potato because this is not the allegations of Ernesto Vigil, a longtime radical and a guy who hates the police department and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no, it's not my story. <laughs> I'm confronting them with their own documents. Mm. And the documents will name names. Mm. So uh, Walter Leon Hill is one of them. There's more than one. Mm. And... Um, uh. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of other names, and uh, I know you probably don't want to go into it here, but I hear that one of the names may be... If we could, hold off on that. <laughs> uh, uh, the book, um, the person you're, you're mentioning is a well-known academic figure. In 2004, he was the most widely quoted ethnic studies scholar in the entire country. His specialty is supposedly uh, revealing and studying and criticizing the crimes of the FBI. He, the man I'm talking about, he, he is a man, was actually the director of the ethnic studies department at the University of Colorado in Boulder in 2004-2005 when he lost his job because people finally looked into his scholarship and found it full of fabrications mm. and plagiarism. Mm. But it had been the most widely cited ethnic studies professor in the country, mm. claimed to be an American Indian, claimed to be 116th Cherokee. <laughs> and anytime someone starts <laughs> claiming that they're Cherokee, that's usually the bogus claim of a white person because being Cherokee is the most popular claim among non-Indians who want to act like they are Indians. <laughs> the person also wrote a book on COINTALPRO. Yeah. And I always point out, people say, oh, COINTALPRO is this evil FBI program. And I always point out, first of all, you use the singular when you say COINTALPRO. There were 13 COINTALPROs, some of longer duration than the others. So... But again, the focus on FBI, all his work is useless in terms of understanding the FBI, its structure, its methodology, its tactic. He publishes nothing new about the FBI. Every document he cites had been published by other people, had wow. been sought by other people. So his work is what's called derivative. He did nothing new. Everything he did derives from the work of others and then he scrambles the data to create confusion. His work is 
useless. Mm. So even though I really don't want to mention him right. at this point, <coughs> those listeners who follow these topics should be able to guess, or they can go back and go to the search engine called Google. <laughs> Look up Executive Director, Ethnic Studies Department, <laughs> University of Colorado, 2004, 2005, because when this book is published, I want to go to where that boy is living in Atlanta, mm. and I want to have a book signing there. Mm. And if you'd be wow. kind enough, this can be considered a challenge for him to debate me. Mm. And one of the first questions I'm going to ask is, when you served in Vietnam, isn't it true that you had special counterinsurgency training at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, in the only recondo school operative in the 48 contiguous United States. Wow. Recondo is a combination of two words, reconnaissance and commando. This boy's military record is classified. Yet wow. he puts himself forth as somebody who reveals government secrets, but the boy... <clears throat> won't talk about his military record. So if any of y'all can guess his name and know who he is, tell him Ernesto is coming. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I can't wait for that book. We're going to talk about it for a long time here on Free Aslan. And, um, and, this is, and this is what, man, I was so happy to have Ernesto here on the show because, you know, Ernesto is not... <clears throat> coming with, um, you know, some information that we've already heard or, you know, his, um, you know, he's coming with some deep information. He, you know, he's given us pointers on how the intelligence community operates, how, what kind of um, agents are on the street. You know, he's, t you know, talking about, um, you know, these revelations in his upcoming book. And I think that they are going to shake uh, they're going to shake the activist community like it, it hasn't been shooken in a very long time. And so I can't wait for this book. And, um, and, and also, um, you know, I can't wait to hear about his book signing in Georgia. Uh, and, and, and hopefully, and I doubt very uh, highly there will be a debate because I don't know if uh, that guy is going to want to uh, go out there and show his face. But he might pack up and move after that book signing, but oh, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be beautiful. But um, yeah, we're coming up short of time here. And um, I, I just want to ask uh, Ernesto um, if um, there's anything else you want to get, get by before we end up, um, um, before we end up signing off on the show. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk to the um I would like to say that it is important for us to <coughs> capture our history and to interpret it correctly. We need to understand that what happened in Los Angeles 50 years ago is a historic event. And we have to interpret it correctly. And we have to not look back at the past in nostalgia. Nostalgia. This stuff about, oh, way back in the 60s and 70s, I used to do blah, blah, blah. Well, that's cool. What are you doing now? And on top of that, if we don't pass the lessons that need to be learned, the historical lessons, onto the current generations, then we are participating in the oppression of the future 
generations. Mm. So I want to commend you for the work you're doing. Mm. I'd also like to commend you personally for your struggles as a person who's lived behind them bars. Mm. Uh, Our struggle is the wave of the future, and if it isn't, we have no future. Mm. Beautiful, brother. And, And I thank you for coming on to Free Aslan and bringing your knowledge, your experience, and your medicine, because I believe that knowledge is medicine, and it heals, you know, um, and because liberation is about healing. It's about healing from colonialism, uh, and you can't heal unless you rid, you rid yourself, you know, of your sick, of your ill, you know, you have a disease, the only way to heal um, is to rid yourself of that disease. And um, I believe that uh, America is a disease. It's the biggest disease in the world. And um, resistance is the medicine. And your words, brother, are pure uh, resistance and pure medicine. And I just want to thank you, brother, for coming on to Free Aslan. Been my pleasure, man. Absolutely. And this is it for today's show. This is 96.1 FM, uh, KEXU. uh, And this is Free Aslan. I'm JV. And we'll see you next week.